is our scripture reading. If you have your Bibles, turn there. The book of Revelation 3, 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church in Sardis has a reputation of being alive, but Jesus says it is dead. Now, it's not entirely dead. He says, I think it was in verse 2, that they are to strengthen what still remains, which is about to die. So that implies it's not entirely, uh, it hasn't entirely died, but it's mostly dead. Though on the outside, it appears to be alive. You know, I was trying to think, what does Sardis look like in you know, 21st century American churches? I imagine a church which has a very well-maintained, attractive building and beautifully groomed church property. I imagine a church where people come dressed in their Sunday best, where there's good attendance, you know, strong offerings each week. Yet there is... Well, according to Jesus, a coldness and a deadness inside. The word that we would use to describe a church like this is, I think the word, you'd say it's cultural Christianity, or maybe it's nominal Christianity, nominal in name only. And it begs the question, how does a Christian get to this point? How do we have this outside reputation of, of health and accompanied with an inner coldness. David Pallison said, and I absolutely love this quote, he said that there are fundamentally two ways of doing Christianity. Fundamentally two ways. In one, you are connected to a God who is highly involved in your daily life, and in the other, you're not. In one, you relate to God as a person does to another person. You tell him much of what's going on in your heart. You speak to him as you would a friend to a friend. And in the other way, you don't. There's really none of that. You either relate to him personally with a transparency and an honesty and a genuineness or... uh, You either speak of your pleasures and your pains and your temptations and the burdens of your heart and the joys of your heart, or 
you don't. The key is, I think that happens, that that takes place long before a person gets to the stage where they have like an outside church persona while internally they're just a complete spiritual wreck. Long before you get to the point where where someone has, seems like they have a great marriage and a perfectly beautiful family and they're a happy Christian, but internally they're a bombsite. Um, the, the reason that happens long before is they've stopped. You've stopped relating to God on a personate, honest, and intimate level. I was thinking about the Church of Sardis and the, the, the idea, the, the second law of thermodynamics. What is the second law of thermodynamics? What's the, it's the law of entropy, uh, that heat flows naturally from an object of higher temperature to an object of lower temperature, and it doesn't go in the opposite direction on its own, on its own accord. At least that's what the, the dummy's guide to physics said when I, when I looked it up on the internet yesterday. It's the law of entropy, and it's, entropy is what, what accounts for the move, movement from the state of order to disorder and the growing coldness of our solar system. We, the physicists tell us that one day the sun is going to grow cold and burn out, and life on our planet it will become like Hoth, and it will be frigid and eventually die. Like, unless there is some jolt of, of energy, some jolt from the outside is injected into the system. I know it's not the perfect analogy, but it does seem that something like spiritual entropy happens to our souls. Uh, if, we lack, if we lack vigilance, our, our souls become cold and wintry and numb, and that seems to be the case in churches as well. And when you're not personally connected to the source of, 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 of power, of, of warmth, of... Uh, of heat in the universe, then spiritual entropy is the result. And then things get really, really bad. Then you're singing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And, and then it becomes a lie. Because Amazing Grace, it's not a sweet sound. Um, it, it doesn't seem amazing. It just isn't. The message that Jesus loves you seems like a trite and superficial slogan. Uh, Jesus died on the cross for your sins is a tired and boring story you've heard countless times before. And um, grace is not sweet and amazing. What I find is that normally, usually, the nominally Christian person doesn't admit that. The culturally Christian person can't or won't bring themselves to the point where they really admit that grace doesn't sound sweet anymore. And instead, they keep going on singing the songs Sunday after Sunday and praying the prayers, saying things, singing things that you really don't believe to be, to be true. And over time, that will begin to hollow you out in, internally. So yes, there, there begins to be formed this outer shell which looks fine, 
in his meeting, it's religious and cultural and social obligations, but there's no warmth and there's no sweetness. I came across an article a week ago written by a woman. Her name is Dinah Kaplan. I don't know if she's a Christian. I don't think that she is. She might be. But what she says in this article, she says, you never realize how much you lie until you try to stop lying completely. Here's her story. Two summers ago, I did my first 10-day silent meditation retreat. We were required to sign five vows to join the program, including a vow of honesty. And when you're about to begin 10 days in silence, signing your name on a vow to not lie doesn't sound like a very bold step. But at the end of the retreat, we were told that the vows, which also included no killing, no stealing, etc., those vows now apply to the rest of our lives. And I was like, wow, I just agreed to not lie for the rest of my life. Well, why don't I give it a try? (laughs) How will my life change if I lived without lying on matters both small and large? It's important to note that this was not a vow of radical honesty where you speak everything that's on your mind. This was just a simple vow promising that whatever you do say, it be true. There's no exception for white lies or or lies to comfort someone when somebody asks you if they like their dress. There's there's no room for that. And then let me give you my parenthetical comment here. A lie is, is it's simply an act of, an attempt at deception. You know, words or actions intended to deceive, that's, I think, the biblical definition of a lie. Whenever you try to deceive someone through your words or your actions, even if it's not technically a lie, a falsification of the truth. It's, it's still a lie. She said, the only exception I would allow myself was to lie to protect someone else's life. But there would be no other excuses. Before this vow, I think it's fair to say I was a pretty honest person. I didn't excessively embellish. I never lied to my clients or my investors. Really, I didn't. And I don't, as a general rule, lie about anything important to friends or loved ones. But then I was shocked at how often I lied to people about little things, unimportant things, that I could have been truthful about. It's almost like I had a reflex to lie only about things that I had no real reason to lie about. A typical lie, I would say, almost unconsciously, would be an explanation for why I was late to a meeting. I might blame the subway when, in actuality, it was punctual and the ride was smooth and it was my fault for leaving late. Or I might be at a restaurant and I might say that I was allergic to fish when I simply just didn't like seafood. Uh, I might say that I had been to London 30 times when, in reality, I know that the number was much closer to 20. I had no idea how many lies I said during a typical week until I began taking note of them. And each day for weeks, I counted. The benefit of this, the flip side of this, is that when you can't lie about being late, you have to say something along the lines of, you know, um, 
I, I'm sorry, but I didn't manage my time properly. I, I left late. Uh, I apologize, and it's my fault. And when you say something like that to people, they can't quite believe it because nobody says that. As I gained confidence in my lack of lying, I found myself shortening the ex- explanation to, I'm sorry, I'm late, it's my fault. And the article goes on. I think you, you get the gist of it. Here's a woman, she may be a Christian, she might not be a Christian, but she has renounced all forms of deception. The passage that was rummaging through my head all week is Psalm 32, verse 12, where David says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Do you remember the second half of that? And in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, I think what ends up happening um, is, especially for the spiritually cold person, is, is sort of spiritual deceit just becomes utterly normalized. It's just commonplace in, in your life. You say and do and act things that you just simply no longer, no longer believe. The deceit is so normalized, you've distanced yourself from the truth that you can't even discern it anymore. And Jesus' words to this church um, are simply, wake up, verse 2. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Wake up. Um, I mean, none of us know precisely what was going on in the church of Sardis in the first century. Was it cultural Christianity? Was it nominal Christianity where you have the nice white steeple and everybody looks the part? Probably not, actually. I mean, given the fact that to be a Christian in the first century was a real sacrifice. But whatever is happening, there is a uh, there's a spiritual coldness and deadness inside, and Jesus prescribes this remedy. Verse 3. Remember what you have received and heard. What was it that they had received and heard? It was nothing other than the gospel itself. And the message of the gospel is that Jesus receives us, welcomes us, while we're still tax collectors and sinners. When we're still, when we don't have our acts together, before we ever even start to clean up our acts, we're justified and we're forgiven and welcomed as sinners by a man who knows us inside and out. And that's what allows us to frankly be honest with each other about ourselves. I've always wanted all saints to be a place where people are accepted for who they are in Christ instead of feeling like they have to be something pious um, that they are not. It's so important we think about the church. Like, out in the world, appearance is everything. But inside the church, truth is supposed to be everything. It's supposed to mean everything to us. And especially the truth that we are given a new identity. We inherit a new identity through the gospel. And the more alive we are to God's love for us in Jesus, in all of our messiness and brokenness, 
the less fear we'll sh- the less fear we'll have sharing our true condition with others. It'll also help that we'll we'll be freed up to be men and women of integrity. So let's do a little word study, I suppose, on that for just a moment. Integrity from the word integrate. What does it mean to integrate? To integrate means to bring several things together into one. It means our actions and words come together as one. Our private lives are consistent with our public lives. It means that what I am in front of you is truly who I am. My private life, my my spiritual life is, for better or worse, consistent with what you are seeing right now. That, I think, is what a man or woman of spiritual integrity says. I am the same person, no matter where I am at, or who I am with, or what's going on internally. George MacDonald wrote that half the misery in the world comes from people trying to look and be what they are not. He said, he goes on, I wish that all good men and women might see me through and through, though they may not be pleased with everything they saw, neither am I. But that's, it's the gospel that frees us up to say that. So I ask you this, do you exaggerate your piety to look more spiritually sophisticated than you really are? Well, there's no need for that. You're loved by Jesus as a tax collector and a sinner and use whatever descriptor you desire. You're welcomed by Jesus in in that state. One additional factor I want to consider is you know, nominal Christianity, Christianity in name only, is contagious, as is lying Christianity. Lying and nominal Christianity, cultural Christianity, is like the measles. It is, it's extremely contagious. If you are in a place surrounded by people who are not serious about the things of God, uh, but aren't willing to own up to that fact, who don't really pursue God, but are nevertheless going through the motions, singing the songs, praying the prayers, showing up to the groups, all of that has a cold and, and wintering effect on a community, doesn't it? Then, of course, the opposite is true. If you are surrounded in a community which is earnestly pursuing God, or is at least honest to the fact that it's not pursuing Him at as they wish. Um, I think that truthfulness has the effect of drawing others back to truth. Truthfulness, maybe truthfulness is magnetic in that truthfulness pulls out truthfulness out of others. And maybe heat can be transferred, at least spiritual heat. The heat and vitality of a real Christian life can spread through a church community. Like spiritual entropy in in the moment in a place of truth can be reversed. And so much of it, I believe, is kickstarted when we renounce deception. Okay, back to verse 3. Hard words from Jesus again. We've 
We've had a lot of hard words from Jesus in this sermon series, Seven Letters, Seven Churches. I've been asking myself, why did I even, why did I choose this? Why did I, I thought that we would get some great pictures of Jesus and a number of different types of churches. What I think we've discovered is that a lot of these churches are very, uh, very similar. And the pervading theme in almost every one of these letters is divine judgment Seven straight weeks of divine judgment is hard to listen to. Um, I'm ready to move on. He says, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So as I've said, there's a lot of local color in every one of the letters. Apparently the city of Sardis was a fortress town. It was perched high above uh, on a mountain, uh, surrounded by sheer cliffs of some sort. And yet, and, and it was thought to be in an impregnable fortress that can't be conquered. And yet at the same time, in the church, this city's long history, twice in the dead of night, enemy soldiers scaled the cliff walls and sacked the city and came like a thief uh, at night. And Jesus says, it could happen to you. Yeah, fifth church of the seven. I wanted today to be happier, and so I want to leave leave you with a, with a happy report. There is a good report from the church of Sardis. Fifty years after John writes this, in the second century, what God did is he raised up a very godly, very wise man by the name of Melito, the bishop of Sardis, Melito of Sardis. One of his contemporaries said that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. Tertullian, the great church father, said that Melito was one of the most eloquent men to be alive in that, in that day. He ended up writing something like 18 books. Sadly, all 18 have not survived. But they, historians tell us that Melito compiled the first list of the Old Testament books which, interestingly enough, did not, for you people who are into theology and church history, it did not include the Apocrypha. And we also read that Melito wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation, which I would have benefited from greatly if it, was, it had still survived today. But the bottom line is that this cold, dead, nominal church under his leadership came alive again. Uh, she woke up 50 or 60 years later. She, she strengthened what remained. She heard the promises that he who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. The promise that I will never blot out their name from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Just imagine what that would be like for Jesus to take your name and to speak it to have your heavenly father. Um, if you are cold, if, if you're atrophied, if you're spiritually entropied, if, if all of the heat has dissipated out of your soul, our God is the God of new creation. He, through the gospel, may he bring new warmth and vitality and strength into you. Amen.